the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. The Gospel of Luke is written so that we may see that we have a reliable faith. Jesus the Messiah had been born to Mary and Joseph of Nazareth, a small, insignificant city. John the Baptist had baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. Last time, we saw that Jesus was tempted by Satan himself after a 40-day fast. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Well, remember, Luke wrote his gospel to show us that we have a reliable faith. He has done the research. He has conducted the interviews necessary to give us a reliable account of Jesus. And having shown us the story behind Jesus' birth, he's now turned to the time where Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus is about 30 years old now, and he has succeeded where Adam failed uh, during his temptation in the desert. And so when he returns to the world of everyday life here in chapter 4, he's going to show Israel now the reason that he came. And so as we see the mar- that marvelous grace of God in sending Jesus this morning, you might it give us thankful hearts for all the Lord has done for us as well. So chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 14. And so Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Here in verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus emerged from the desert. And it says he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Now, that means he had to go up the Jordan River Valley, about a 50-mile trek from the place where John was baptizing. Uh, And yet, we don't find out much about that trip. It just mentions the key of how he returned. It says he returned in the power of the Spirit. You know, remember, Jesus went into the desert to fight the enemy as a man. Well, how does a man or woman fight those battles? Well, we need supernatural help. We need to lean on God's word. And that's what we covered in Jesus's temptation in the wilderness in chapter four, verses one through 13. That's how Jesus goes into the desert. Look at verse one. Then Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. Jesus went into the wilderness, yielded to God's spirit, filled with God's spirit and led by God's spirit. And how did he combat the enemy? It is written, it is written, it is written. And that's exactly how he emerges. He emerges trusting and leaning on God's word and filled with the power of God's spirit. And I would ask you this morning, you know, how do you emerge from your battles with the enemy? If you're frequently emerging from those situations beaten up or defeated, it's a sign you're trying to take on temptation in your own strength or by your own methods. And that's not how the Lord wants us to emerge from those situations. 
That word there, power, it means supernatural ability to perform a task. God sets things in front of us that we need to do. He sets trials in front of us, tests in front of us. He sets tasks in front of us, and he equips us to do all those things. The task at hand and other things that go on in our lives around here and things that go on in your lives, you know, they may seem challenging, but the Lord, he gives you the ability to do those things. So we need to go in his power. If we try to do anything, no matter how simple it might seem in our own strength, guess what's going to happen? Even if we succeed, it's not going to be pleasing to the Lord because we'll be in the flesh. We won't be moving in his power. We're going to be emerging from those situations, beaten up, worn out, and defeated. You know, it's interesting that word power, we get our word dynamite from it. So we're dunamis. And when dynamite happens, you know, nothing can stop it, right? You know, that's the idea of you throw it, throw in the dynamite to take it out. Jesus, he had a massive task in front of him and he needed that dynamite power. He must start his ministry just like he fought the enemy in the desert. And because he does, awesome things happened. Notice it says here in verse 14 that there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about, all the surrounding area. There went out a fame. And it says he taught in their synagogues being glorified of all. The phrase fame means news spread. Talk ran rapidly. Everybody was talking about this new rabbi, Jesus. And it says that he went into their synagogues and taught them. He was formally instructing them, just like a rabbi would in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That phrase glorified, it means people were saying there's something unusually fine about him, something deserving of honor. They were praising this new rabbi. People loved it when Rabbi Jesus came to teach in their synagogue. And you know, these were the glory years for Jesus's followers. There was no opposition from religious leaders. The hype train was full of steam. It's interesting about the book of Luke is that A year and a half of Jesus's ministry is contained in these two verses. A year and a half. Peter, James, Andrew, and John, they've all become his disciples during this time. They don't follow Jesus everywhere yet. That's why when we get later in Luke, we're going to see Jesus come to them and says, hey, I want you to leave your nets and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they do. But they are his disciples by this point, but they still have jobs. They're with him a lot though. Now you might be saying, what did Jesus do during these 18 months that made him so famous? Well, Mark tells us that he preached about the kingdom of God. You may say, well, anybody could have done that. What's special about the preaching of the kingdom of God? Well, it was how Jesus did so that impacted folks. As we see in the middle of this chapter, it says that when he teaches, they're gonna be amazed because he speaks as one with authority. What does that mean that he spoke with authority? Well, back then, the way that most rabbis taught is, you know, they would say, now, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and they'd give a discourse on that, and they'd go, but Rabbi so-and-so says this, and then they'd give a discourse on that. And a lot of times, you'd kind of walk out and go, so which rabbi am I supposed to believe, you know? And they would kind of all pick their rabbis, you know? And, and that's how church kind of was, you know? You'd, you'd go to synagogue, and you'd go there, and, you know, and he'd go, Rabbi, you know, so-and-so says this, and you go, I don't like the rabbi. And then the next rabbi, he would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and then you'd noodle the guy next to you and go, you need to listen to that guy. He's good. But there was never that point in time where anybody could leave going, God has spoken to me. That was what was different about Jesus. When Jesus would come into their synagogues, they would learn the word of God and it would impact their lives. Jesus would call the people to repent because God's kingdom was close. And doing it in the power of the spirit made an impact upon people's lives because they heard God speaking right to their hearts. Listen, you can be the most educated Bible teacher in the world. You can know a ton more than I do or anybody else does. But if if you're not speaking and teaching in the power of God's spirit, then good luck. Good luck changing anybody's life. 
You might fill their heads with knowledge. You might get them to noodle the people next to them. You might be, you know, equip them enough so they can yell at all the people at work they don't agree with, but you're not going to change their life. It's only the word of God spoken by the power of God's spirit that can impact our lives. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus goes to visit his hometown synagogue. It says that, and he came to Nazareth. Nazareth sat on a hill in the western side of Galilee. It was away from the bustle around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus spent most of his time, most of his early ministry in those cities right around the Sea of Galilee. When he finally returns home to speak in his hometown synagogue, though there's great expectation. They have heard all the rumors of the healings Jesus is doing, the teaching power of Jesus, and now he's come home to their synagogue. What's going to happen? But I love it here. It mentions that when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, it says, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, the phrase their custom means to be in the habit of doing something. Some people have tried to say, well, Jesus was in the habit of being a reader at Nazareth, so it was natural for him to do that. That might be the case, but we don't know that. What the phrase here of his custom was, it refers to the fact that Jesus regularly went to the synagogue services wherever he was. As the perfect man, the one who's doing things the way God wants us as men and women to do things, Jesus saw it as important to pray with God's people and to learn God's word. I imagine as Jesus walked into the Jewish synagogues of that day, he must have seen many things in which he disagreed with and which grated on him. I'm sure there were times he thought, oh, that is not what that passage means when he heard somebody teach. I'm sure there were times when he thought, that guy, I know what's going on in that guy's heart. He should not be praying today. And yet he went. Yet he went. This is why the writer of Hebrews uses the word for synagogue in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 when he says, we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but even more so as we see the day approaching, the day of his return. But we're to provoke one another to love and to good works. The word to not forsake the assembling. The word they're assembling is synagogue in the Greek. That's that word for synagogue. That's that idea is where God's people are meeting publicly. That's where we need to be. We need to make it our habit to be with God's people and to be taught God's word. And we need it more as, as the days get closer to Jesus coming back. How many of you know that we're almost 2,000 years closer to Jesus coming back from when Hebrews was written? We need it even more. What's interesting is that the worship of God wasn't perfect in Jesus's day just like it's not in our day. But like Jesus, we need to attend regularly. You may not like the way we do some things around here. Maybe you might say, oh, I don't know, you know, about this or that. I'll just read my Bible at, at home today. Don't do that. God wants you here. We need you here. Now, the people met at the synagogue in Jesus's day three times a week. They met on Monday, Thursday, and the Sabbath day. Those services consisted of opening prayers by select individuals, then a reading of the law, and that would be divided up so that they would finish the law from Genesis to Deuteronomy over a three and a half year period. And then at the end of that, there would be a teaching. The weekday services, they would actually only have three readings of the law, and they would only have a teaching if a rabbi was present. But on the Sabbath, they would have those seven readings of the law, and then they would have a teaching 
preaching to conclude the service. Now we see here that Jesus stood up for to read, but because he's not given a scroll of the law, he's given a scroll of Isaiah, we know that he's going to be the guest speaker. He's going to be the teacher this day. Because word of what Jesus had been doing over the last 18 months had reached Nazareth, Jesus was asked to be the reader for that service. But again, not just any reader, not just a reader of the law, but a teacher. He's going to be the one to give the sermon on that day. So verse 17, what does Jesus do? Well, it says, they delivered to him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And there was delivered unto him, the King James says book, but it means scroll. If you've ever seen how the Jews do it, where they have, they call it the ark, and they have this, this huge kind of box, and then they pull the scrolls out of it. Those are the scrolls that have the scriptures on them. That's what they would do in Jesus's day. Pull out the scroll of Isaiah, and they hand it to Jesus. Jesus, he opens it, and he's looking for a specific spot. It says, when he had opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written. So he was looking for it. And what was written that he placed that he finds, we know from that is quoted here, is Isaiah 61 verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2. If you go back and read that right now, which you may be doing, it's a little bit different from your version because Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's worded a little bit different because over translation, some words don't translate perfectly. That's why sometimes when I'm here and I'll teach you Bible study and I'll say, hey, you know, this word means this because as you're reading, you're probably not going to take the time to look all those things up and you don't need to do that. But sometimes it gives us a nuance that helps us to understand the passage just a little bit better. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament and some things didn't translate well. So there's there's some more language in there. So that's why it doesn't fit exactly if you turn back to Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. However, it's pretty close. If we go back to the book of Isaiah 61, and if you do some research on your own, you'll find that Isaiah is writing to a people. It's kind of a neat thing. He prophesies hundreds of years before it happens that they're going to go into captivity in Babylon. And then he writes comfort to the people who are going to be there. Isn't that cool? And so Isaiah 61 falls in that section of comforting passages where he's writing to the people who are going to be in captivity in Babylon so that they'll be comforted, okay? In Isaiah 61, part of that comfort is that Isaiah is proclaiming freedom will come to those who are going to captivity in Babylon. They're going to get to come back home. However, that prophecy that they're going to come back home falls among what are called the servant songs of Isaiah 40 all the way through 66, that third section of Isaiah. And every one of those servant songs point forward to God's servant, his Messiah, and how that greater rescue is going to occur through him. And so this passage that he's quoting here is a messianic passage, and it explains what God appointed the Messiah to do. For it says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here we see the Messiah has a supernatural power from God. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The word anointed there is in the Greek is krio. It's where we get our word Christ from, where we get our word Messiah from. And it means to assign a person to a task with a supernatural endowment to accomplish it. So the Messiah has a supernatural power from God. Well, to do what? Well, to do quite a few things it mentions here. The first thing it mentions is that he has been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. The Messiah has been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. That word preach, the phrase preach the gospel, it's all one word in the original language. That's why I say it doesn't always translate perfectly. We don't have a word for evangelize. We use that, but I would say that and you go, what does that mean? Well, it means to preach the gospel, to announce the good news. Who's he announcing good news to? To the poor. Now, this is the same word Jesus will use in the Sermon on the Mount when he 
says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It means to persist in a state of utter destitution. And while Jesus wants us to help the financially destitute, that is not what is in mind here. Isaiah 61.1 uses the word meek, which means those who are humble, those who are pious, those who are reverent towards God. The good news that Jesus came to proclaim was salvation for those who knew they were spiritually destitute who wanted a relationship with the Lord, but were held back by their sin. Those who realized they could never be right with God on the basis of their own goodness. And aren't you glad that Jesus brought that awesome news that we could have a relationship with God based on his righteousness? Aren't you thankful for the gospel? Aren't you glad for salvation by grace through faith alone? I'm so glad that I'm not saved by my works. I'm not saved by my own righteousness because I'd never be saved. That's not rescue at all. But Jesus has rescued us by his grace, amen? So the Messiah is going to announce that. That's what he's going to do, preach that. Secondly, it says, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. The word there, heal, means to repair, to restore, to soothe. When it talks about the brokenhearted there, it means those who've had their hearts completely shattered, completely shattered. You know, the world is a cruel place. We've all had our hearts broken, but some of us have been completely wrecked. Things, maybe they don't work inside your heart and mind like God intended And if you feel broken like that inside today, know that you don't have to stay that way. Jesus, he can heal you from the pain that's been brought to you by others or by the circumstances that have happened in your life. He wants to repair your heart. He wants to soothe and restore your heart so that you can work again. Next, it says that the Messiah, it says that he's gonna preach deliverance to the captives. Now, the word there, preach, is a different word here. It's not the word to bring good news, but it means to be a herald, to make the official announcement from the king. You know, before the king would come, they'd get the guy with the trumpet come out and go, king so-and-so, here's the great grand announcement. Jesus, the Messiah, he's going to announce what? Deliverance to the captives. The word deliverance means liberty. Pardon, release for the prisoners of war. The enemy of our souls has taken many prisoners of war, enslaving them to sin. Jesus, he came to announce that you don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. He can set you free so you'll never be a slave again. If you've been enslaved by some sin today and has had a hold on your life, Jesus wants to set you free. That's kind of what I'm heralding today is that he came to herald and say he could set you free from that. I'm living proof of that in my own life. I don't remember who it was. A famous minister said that the road to Christianity is littered with dying saints, broken saints, you know, soldiers who have been wiped out by the enemy. You don't have to be wiped out by the enemy. Jesus came to set you free, not just from the penalty of sin, but free from its power too, amen? To be an overcomer. Next, the Messiah came to recover the sight to the blind. John 9.32, the man who had been born blind, remember Jesus healed him. And you gotta love the Pharisees. You know, here's this guy who hasn't been able to see. Jesus heals him. They come to him and they wanna quiz him about what's going on. And he gives them the rundown and and they keep quizzing him on this. And finally he looks at me, he goes, you know, why do you keep asking me all these questions? Do you wanna become his disciples too? And they get really mad then. Because the whole reason they're questioning him is because they're trying to find something wrong with the details of how Jesus did the healing. Did he do something that one of our rules says he can't do? Then we could bust him. Do you know what, how horrible that is? This guy couldn't see for his entire life and now he can. And so they tell him and they say, listen, you know what? We don't know about this guy, but, but you know, so, so we know God's good. So why don't you give God all the glory? 
And the guy goes, you know, <laughs> that's interesting that you guys can't figure out who this guy is. Where has it ever been in all of the history of the world that someone opened the eyes of someone who was born blind? You guys are dumb as stumps. You don't get it. Of course, what do they do? They're those elitist Pharisees. They say, you were altogether born in sins. That's why you were born blind. You know, and they excommunicated the poor guy. Jesus, he came to do things nobody else could do. He came to do things that people say nobody can do. He came to do the miraculous. And I want to tell you this morning, no matter what your doctor says, no matter what your bank account says, no matter what your heart tells you, nothing is too difficult for him to rescue you. Nothing is too difficult for him to rescue you. He does things nobody else can do. Next, the Messiah was anointed, empowered by God to set at liberty them that are bruised. The word send at liberty, same word. It means to pardon, to, to send out pardon, to send out release, to send out liberty to those who are bruised. The word they're bruised, it means those who've been completely overwhelmed, those who are in serious trouble. You know what I love about Jesus? One of the reasons he came is to show us that our limitations aren't his limitations. Aren't you glad that's the case? Because we pray that way sometimes. Sometimes we pray and, and we think, well, Lord, you know, if you could do this, it'd be great, you know, but probably not because, you know, because we just don't see a way. Now, what about you? For me, our singing time is part of getting me back in the right mindset because you go throughout the whole week, you kind of see all the junk, right? And, and you got all these things that are kind of facing you and you think, how is God going to fix that? And you pray and you ask him to, but you kind of think to yourself, yeah, but these things don't just go away, right? And these things don't just, you know, get fixed. And you kind of start running the scenarios in your mind and you don't see a scenario where it works, right? When you're laying in bed at night, you can't figure it out. And you pray, but you can't figure it out. Maybe you have a, a child who's not walking with the Lord or a spouse, you know, who doesn't know the Lord or you know, maybe you've got, you know, a, a situation at work, you think, or maybe you don't have work, maybe you're trying to find work, you Lord, how, how? You know, maybe you're single today, and you're lonely, and you think, Lord, where, you know, I don't want to go clubbing, that's not the place to find a spouse. Where am I going to find somebody to spend the rest of my life with? Jesus' limitations aren't our limitations. We come, and we sing, and we talk about our unstoppable God, right? You know, and we're declaring that from our hearts. It's an act of faith to do that sometimes, Right? It's not the faith to say, Lord, you know, I, I trust you. You're in control. I know you can do this because you're God. If you're overwhelmed right now or you're in trouble, the Lord wants to say that no matter how big a mess you've made of things, he can get you through it. But not just get you through it, but set your feet on solid ground. Amen? That's what Jesus came to do. And lastly, God empowered the Messiah to come and preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I love this part. The acceptable, it means a favorable time, pleasing time, a welcome time. The Messiah came to announce a season. The word there, year, doesn't mean an actual year. It just means a unit of indefinite time, just a season, a season of grace. This would immediately call to the Jewish listeners in that synagogue the year of Jubilee. They would understand that immediately. A season of favor, a season of grace, that's what the year of Jubilee is. What's the year of Jubilee, you might say? Let me tell you what it's not. Don't listen to any of those prosperity teachers who say, I'll proclaim a year of Jubilee, you know, you don't have to pay your bills, you know. That's not what the year of Jubilee is. Every 50 years in Jewish society, all debts were canceled. All servants went free. All land reverted back to the original owners. Everyone got a fresh start. Everyone got a clean slate. Grace. Not getting what you deserve. 
getting what you haven't earned instead. You may have messed up your finances, messed up your business, and now you're an indentured servant or you're in a lot of debt or you've had to sell off your land. Well, guess what? Grace. You hadn't earned it, but God's just gonna give it all back to you. Every 50 years, Israeli society would experience that year of jubilee. They understood a season of grace. And so when Jesus, he says, you know, that the Messiah has come to announce this, what good news that would be. Jesus, when he came as the Messiah, he came to announce a season of grace from God, and it's been going on for 2,000 years. As we're still in that season of grace. We're still in that year of jubilee. So nobody needs to proclaim a year of jubilee. We're in it, okay? We're in a year of jubilee. We're in a season of grace, and it will continue until the rapture occurs and God begins to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world during the tribulation period. God invites all of us to come to him, even though we don't deserve it. He presents to all of us that we can have a fresh start. Aren't you glad that God's grace is available every day for you? I'm so glad for that. Because some days I go to bed at night and you think, Lord, tomorrow needs to start now. You're not even in bed yet and you're thinking, Lord, tomorrow starting would be a good, good day today. That's because every morning his, his, his mercies are new, right? His grace is available to us every morning, fresh starts, where we can begin anew in our relationship with him. This was a very significant passage for Jesus to select because up to this time, as Rabbi Jesus is teaching in their synagogues, doing miracles, everyone's wondering, is he the Messiah? I mean, John was preaching that Messiah's coming and we've heard rumors that even when Jesus came to be baptized by John, that he said, that's the guy. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what does that mean? You know, he hasn't made any official announcement. And here they're probably wondering, did Jesus come back to his hometown to make the announcement here? I mean, that's where you do things like that, right? right? If you're going to run for president, you come to your hometown and you make the announcement, Jesus is running for Messiah. You can join his campaign, contribute here. Could he have come home to make the official announcement that he's the Messiah? As we look at all these things that the Messiah is going to do, he's going to preach the gospel to us. He did that by his life. Heal the brokenhearted, he did that by his life. Preach deliverance to the prisoners of war, he did that for so many people in Israel. But many of those things were finalized through the cross, right? I mean, that's, that's where we find that forgiveness of sins. That's where we find freedom from the power of sin. That's where we find salvation. That's where we find the grace of God, right? So what a great thought as we enter communion this morning. You know, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together to remember what he did for us, what he came to do, and to, to walk in it. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.